Welcome to Ben Navarra's podcast with your host, Ben Navarra's. So my dad always told my brother and me, just because there's nobody behind you doesn't mean you're not a leader. You know? I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Your dad just seems like a very wise man. He certainly was. He was the first in his family to go to college. My mother was the first in her family. So their peer group became, and, and their children became my true cousins, more so than the family I was born into. Um, so that crew of folks, you know, constantly um, strove for excellence and the kids did as well because it was always, hey, Greg, Glenn, you, do you know what your god sister did? Yeah, she got a four-year scholarship to school. Oh, so it was always, somebody was always in your ear with what cousin so-and-so did. Well, this is what your god sister did, or right, so. It's gotta be both kind of annoying <laughs> at the same time, obviously motivating to a degree, right? Yeah, no, it wasn't annoying, it was just, that's the way it was. And okay. it was, you know, you want to make sure your name is discussed when the parents are together playing. This is back in the days when people played cards and, you know, sat around the table talking about uh, kids and everything else. And you wanted to be part of that discussion. You know, hey, well, this is what Greg and Glenn are doing. Oh, Mm. <laughs> Wait till I tell Denise and Leah. <laughs> Greg got a scholarship to college. Oh, did he? Yeah. So everybody, everybody pushed each other. That's and a good, good community to be a part of. It was for sure, for sure. So now, my god sister is a well, she's an EDD, um, and runs a. Um, it's a, a, not a trade association, but a, um, it's a group out of New York City that focuses on uh, education for high schoolers going into college, like college prep. I uh, got another cousin who's a PhD professor. I think she's at Rutgers. My other god sister's a lawyer, an entrepreneur. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're all over the place with what they're doing. And then was it all within that same small community, like, area? Yeah, it was my parents. So my parents were introduced by their best friends from college. So my dad's roommate and track team uh, teammate uh, was dating my Aunt Leander, who was my mother's sorority line sister. So Uncle Ken said, hey, Walter, you ought to meet Ruth. You know, his wife, uh, girlfriend at the time, Leander. Yeah, that's Leander's best friend. Yeah. So they met and got hitched. So the two best friends, best friends married each other. It's <laughs> <laughs> like the ideal situation. Yeah, that was the ideal situation. Yeah. So they became Uncle Ken and Aunt Leander growing up. And uh, their daughters, Denise and Leah, were my god sisters, or are my god sisters. And so it was just my brother and I, we didn't have any sister sisters and they didn't have any brother brothers. So we were their brothers and they were our sisters. And we spent holidays together and 
summer's up on Cape Cod and winter's up in Vermont. Yeah, so it was just storybook way to grow up. And then Leander had... If you don't mind bringing that guy just a little bit closer to your face. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, Leander had... Um, and then if you don't also mind... Yep. We're going to put these... Put so the headphones you, on? You can move them pretty, like pretty... Yep, yep. Um, and then, yeah, the headphones will just pop right uh, There we go. Yeah, so that's how that all that's how that all went down. You said and then Leander. Leander know, and Ken. You were gonna go into something else about Leander. If you need to move that guy, then you can the, the cage itself will move. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You mean this yeah, you already know. I mean this is your it was <laughs> it was part of your space at one point, right? It was. Yeah, I mean, I used to do a lot of work in studio um, in New York when I was, uh, you know, coming up in really high school and college. Yeah, I did a lot of um, off-Broadway theater. Then I did a little bit of recording. I had the rap record I told you about. I had a uh, jazz single we had done uh, with a buddy of mine, the same guy from my church. Yeah. The life that you have lived <laughs> has to be one of the most fun and unique, from an outside perspective, from the most fun and unique and like diverse. Why? Why well, choose to do all the different things? Well, that goes to my parents as well. So one of my parents' mantras was, you don't want to get to be 50 and saying, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Boy, I wish I would have tried that. Boy, I should have tried this. So they said, try everything. So even with sports, I mean, we did everything. They were like, give it a try. If it sticks, then that'll be your thing. If not, find something else. So we did Everything. My brother was a um, on a competitive swim team in starting in junior high, and I was a um, tennis aficionado. So played a lot of tennis before I before he and I went into football. Uh, so yeah, I mean we did we did literally everything. That's- Shot and discus, track. Excuse me. My dad was a track star. Uh, he ran hurdles and uh, actually had the New York City record uh, for a while for, uh, at that time, uh, the 110 and 220 hurdles. Those were the sprints. And then the 440 was kind of middle distance. That's a tougher uh, race. So he was a sprinter. 440? Yeah. 440 yards. So it was a 110 yard, 220 yard, 440 yard. And now it's 100 meter. Right, because meters are three point six inches longer than uh, a standard yard, so you stretch that over distance, and it's no longer one ten; it's just one hundred meters. About the same length. How long ago was that? It was so when I was in. I came out of high school in eighty two, and it was still hundred yards back then. I didn't realize we didn't adopt. Meters yeah. into <laughs> sport. And I'm that. pre-metric. Yeah, so um, 
back in my day coming up, um, yes, yeah, uh, Track meets were were done in it was called Imperial. I mean, it wasn't called Imperial. It was just it was American. The rest of the world was metric. Uh, so if you did international meets, that's when it was a hundred meters, two hundred meters. But in the U.S., everything was in yards. Yeah. Do you know when it changed by chance? I couldn't give you a year. Um, I would have to say though, it was definitely in the eighties. I mean, we the U.S. fought. Metric, we still do, but why the U.S. Well, Americans fight everything, right? You know, so there's a funny observation when you're in Europe. <clears throat> they say, "Well, what do you call someone who speaks three languages?" And that's oh, trilingual. What do you call somebody who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call somebody who speaks one language? American. <laughs> so. For a lot of reasons, we're 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 blessed with a tremendous landmass that is our own, with relatively friendly neighbors to the north and south. Um, so that does a significant well. It goes a long way into what had been kind of isolationist thinking until. Really, World War One, where we got pulled into being part of the global community. Um, we're still extraordinarily fortunate that we've never had um, a war other than the Civil War and our own, uh, well, the Revolutionary War, of course, but that was what kicked it all off. But <clears throat> never have had uh, war, World War battles fought on the continental U.S., Right, so we've been extraordinarily fortunate in that regard. But because we have our own continent, and there's six thousand miles to the west until you get to Asia, and forty-five hundred miles to the east until you get to Great Britain, um, that's a, that's a long ways away. So it was always this is our thing, this is how we do it, and. Uh, this is the language we speak, and if you're coming here, everybody get on board. Same crap you hear today. Same crap. Right? And, um, yeah, so th that's um, – there's still a lot of isolationist, and uh, and even see the bumper stickers now, America first thinking. I, I think, I mean, English and is it Mandarin are the two business mm -hmm. languages – so I, I see people coming from Mexico into U.S. and the value of them learning, but then it uh, frustrates me sometimes where it's like, hey, no, no, Right. This is English land. Right. It's like, That's right. You can't speak barely even English. Yeah. I mean, if you look at how poorly English is spoken and the fairly limited vocabulary across much of the country, you know, to be insisting that others get in line or go back home when everybody here except for Native Americans are immigrants and Mexicans, I would add, since, uh, you Texas. know, uh, yeah, you know, they, they woke up and all of a sudden they were Texans. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> My house is in the same place. How am I a Texan now? That has to be, you know, the why like this is just this is just ours now. Yeah, that's right, that's right. So yeah, history is a uh, 
there's a lot to learn from history rather than just the static teachings you get in school, but you don't realize that until you get older. We really sit down and think about what has been happening uh, over the course of human history. It's pretty fascinating. When did you start taking more action to learn about history? You know, I can't say I took action to learn more, but life experiences, realization, study in other areas then gave me the opportunity to recalibrate how I had been taught and what I had been taught and the lens through which it was taught. You know, when, you, when you've had a lifetime of experiences, your lenses, A, you realize there's no one color or size lens for a particular story or a particular set of stories or beliefs. It gives you the um, intellectual capacity to analyze it from a number of different angles and see, um, you know, see see the stories and the meaning that's been written out of history books, that's been talked around uh, for students, and you know, you get to think for yourself. And so that's that's the benefit of growing up, but more importantly, that's the benefit of uh, having a lifetime of learnings. You know, keeping yourself. Uh, open-minded, again, something else that uh, we're falling short of these days, um, and not being, not believing what's being spoon-fed to you. There's just so much being spoon-fed. Mm-hmm. There There's is. so much, and it's so distracting. It's not real information. No, it's not. It's not. But neither is the information in most history books. Like to say, I mean, history literally is his story, right? So the victor writes the story. The victor owns the history. The victor owns the myth. And the historical myth gets written to put the victor in the best light or to present the story in a form and fashion that he or she uh, resonates with. Truth be damned. <laughs> Truth be damned. It's finally like getting out of high school. I mean, even in high school, and not like in middle school and in high school, there wasn't really, we never really opened the textbook. And if we did, it was like 1607, 1776. That's right. You need to know these couple. And outside of that, not much. And getting into college, even then, there was still, unless you like really sought out and like talked to other people who had already done a lot of research, there was no real quick way to learn. No. Which I guess I mean, not supposed to be right. A lot of what education is, it's memorization so you can get through the test, so you can get your sheepskin and get on with your life. You know, you're not really taught how to think critically. Um, you're taught enough so that you can become a quote-unquote productive member of society, right? So, like, even when I went to law school, there's really, I always tell folks, there's really only one class 
that I used consistently throughout my career. And it was called Legal Research and Writing. And um, it's one of the least valued courses um, by the academy, as it were, by professors, because it's not a substantive course, right? It's teaching you the mechanics and the thought process of how to communicate your ideas. But that's not what the professors value. They value the esoteric constitutional law theories and useless Supreme Court uh, opinions and learning about corporations. And I literally, I use none of that that I learned in law school once I started to practice law. It's a, like most jobs, it's a on-the-job on the training um, kind of uh, profession where you learn what you need to know while you're doing it. And you learn from others who are more senior than you who have done it before. And uh, that's how you learn. Um, but being able to think critically, being able to communicate concisely and clearly, that's what legal research and writing was about. And that's the hallmark of um, advocates and communicators in the legal profession. That is a skill that I want to continue to practice. Yes. That is why we are here today. And not, not why we're here today, but why I partly enjoy this. It gives yeah. me the opportunity to watch other people communicate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And where 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 is this guy going to be? But like, yeah. the voice sounds very clear. And I don't, it, like, you project very well. And so it's just little things from every single person that you get to learn a little bit about. Yeah, for sure. And you have a lot of knowledge. You have a lot of experience. You know, it's funny. My, my family calls me a font of useless knowledge. I yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I was always a fan of learning, reading, technology. So I would read... Um, you know, books that seemed out of place for an eight, nine, ten-year-old. I would read. I had a popular science subscription. I would read cover to cover with great interest and really delve into the topical areas. Um, but things, you know, don't enter my head and leave. They just kind of stay there. And um, you know, I'm, I've got the ability to access it randomly. Whenever, you know, a topical area comes up. So uh, my wife always says, I'm never at a place at a cocktail party. Always got something to add. Even even with what I do at TTI, you know, I work with um, uh, engineers, PhDs, all kinds of extraordinarily uh, talented and brilliant uh, scientists. And, you know, the conversations we have, I'm constantly challenging them and coming up with new ways to interpret what we do. Um, and they always say, you know, it's really great that you're here with us, Greg, because the way you see the world and the way you process information is, and data is so different than how we engineers are trained. They think linearly. And um, that's a great talent to have uh, in the engineering disciplines. But you know, lawyers come at it from so many different angles, and it's a lot of more esoteric thinking than they normally have an opportunity to um, uh, practice in what they do. That you know, I'll come out of uh, 
left field. I was I'm I'm the one with the crazy questions and the crazy ideas, but there's value in that because um, you know if you're not pushing the envelope, if you're not uh, if you're afraid to ask um, questions because you feel that it'll make you look like a dumb dumb. Um, you know, like they say in the law, the only stupid question is one that doesn't get asked. So you've got to, um, particularly with what I do, I've got to leap in, engage folks uh, at their level, or at least my understanding of their level, and tease out where we can take concepts and technologies. What concepts and technologies are you challenging? Uh, it's interesting. I had a conversation, an interview uh, with a PhD, actually a double, dual PhD, who was interviewing uh, with um, the College of Engineering. And he's a nanomaterials specialist, but also a specialist with sensor technologies. And I talked about the fact that where we need to be taking, the conversation no longer about transportation, it's about mobility, right? Everything's blended together. It's all about moving people, data, and goods. Um, so I said, you know, where we need to be thinking from a how do we grow the research enterprise at Texas A&M is, you know, if we're, if we're clear about what at least vehicular mobility is, it rides on four or maybe more, well, two or more contact patches, where literally where the rubber hits the road. I said, so how do we come up with sensor technology that we can incorporate into a rubber matrix, right? perhaps using the nanomaterials that this professor was talking about? I said, but we need to have um, tires that can communicate roadway conditions. I said, why do we wait for the weather channel? Why do we wait for flashing lights and signs if we can come up with technology where the tire is part of the information matrix and utilizes sensors that can tell you what's the coefficient of friction on a particular stretch of road? What's, um, you know, what's going on when you cross over black ice or when, you know, you see the signs that says bridge may freeze, you know, uh, early. Uh, why can't you get that data from your tires? So he, I mean, he sat up. He was like, "That that's, we've never thought of it from that fashion. I said, yeah. I said, we, we're so busy looking at how do we make the next generation asphalt? How do we make the next generation concrete? Support for Ben Thinking is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped's performance package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 8 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code THINKING at manscaped.com if my math is correct that's about 16 million balls i got my lawnmower and weed whacker recently and i immediately put the weed whacker inside of my nostrils no nicks no snags and 
I have never been able to smell things as good as after I used the crop, the weed whacker. The crop preserver makes my balls smell nice every single day that I'm in the gym. And of course, we love that. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code thinking at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code thinking. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. That's all well and good, but how about if we're talking about data and generating or, or, you know, turning data into useful information, what are the data sources that we can uh, massage out from these technologies that you're a specialist in? So he got really geeked. <laughs> He's doing everything he can right now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He's, he was writing down notes. So I was like, yeah, you need to come join us at... Texas A&M, and let's get cracking on this. Oh, so he, he's not an A&M? No, no, he was visiting from another university, uh, you know, and, and was interviewing with the College of Engineering. So it's those kinds of things. Brilliant people, but, you know, they, they're in their lane, and they're looking at, this is what I do. I say, okay, I understand what you do. Let's figure out how we can morph that slightly into continuing what you do, but in a new application. Oh, yeah, so that kind of stuff. You know, nothing that's really, um, well, I would hate to say rocket science. His wife was a geophysicist, so, you know, like I said, brilliant people. But um, just bringing them some, some real-world flavor to uh, challenges that, um, uh, you know, typical transportation users might come across, you know, one of those, um, uh, what's the, what's the saying? Was this, uh, I wonder why somebody hasn't invented this. You know, everybody has those ideas from time to time. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's make that actionable. Right? Let's put that into practice as opposed to just talking about it. Taking that next step is the difference between a real life, really innovative and fun project that changes the way that you have mobility or any else but yeah there's always hesitation to take the next step that's right that's right or you know sometimes folks getting back to that original point we're making sometimes folks are afraid to get laughed at getting laughed at is a real thing that's right I... so if i can give them the freedom to say oh that wacko winfrey came up with this but you know we thought maybe we'd Put a couple of grad students on it and see if there's a there there. That's that's what I'm there to do. You know, now somebody doesn't have to explain to their department head how they came up with this crazy idea. Oh, I was just chatting with that TTI director and, you know, we figured we'd maybe run this down for a little bit. And you never know. You never know what sticks. You have such a good... Radio voice? Yeah. I'm looking at my levels, and all my levels are right about the same. Yeah, yeah. You have an amazing radio voice. Well, you know, I mean, that's I did a little radio in college, too, on uh, the St. John's University uh, station. I had a jazz program. Um, At the time, um, 
you know, there's what is known as straight ahead jazz. That's kind of tradition, traditional uh, jazz that comes up from um, kind of the, it, it's a bit more modern. Um, Miles Davis, Sonny Rollins, Dexter Gordon, gentlemen of that era, Billy Holiday, Sarah Vaughan. So there's a tradition um, that straight ahead jazz falls into. And then the um, more melodial is a good way to put it. Jazz kind of came around. So it became what is melodial? Kind of light jazz is what they call it now. Um, the watercolor station on Sirius XM. There's real jazz as a station and then watercolors. So groups like, uh, well not groups, but Kenny G, excuse me, would have been one of the uh, uh, early pioneers in um, melodial jazz. Um, you know, kind of the way straight ahead or real jazz works is um, there's about eight bars of a musical theme that's presented. And then the individual um, instruments in, let's say it's a quartet or a quintet, each member then takes their uh, opportunity for a solo. And what the solo does is it riffs on uh, the theme that that eight bar sets up at the beginning of the song. And then so trumpet will take, uh, you know, his or her uh, solo, sax, you know, sometimes drums, sometimes bass. So everybody gets their shot at free expression of the theme of the song. And then after everyone has concluded their solos, it's usually eight more bars to bring the audience back to what the original theme was to close out the song. So that's kind of how straight-ahead jazz works. Melodial jazz is um, a lot more, I should say melodic, not melodic. There's a lot more melodic. Uh, the theme lasts longer through the song. Uh, there will be opportunities for individual players uh, to, to kind of riff on it and have solos, but it's more song-oriented than just a straight eight-bar theme-oriented. So not a tremendous amount of difference, but... Uh, it's more kind of the modern take um, on kind of a, a meeting of jazz and R&B, I would say. So Pat Metheny, Kenny G, those kinds of those kinds of cats, as we put it. Do you think that your background or experience or perception with experience with music? would relate to the way that you can like see these slightly differences, these slight differences between science or in science? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. There's a lot of science and theory in music, you know, um, folks. And I used to think this when I, I played trumpet. So when I first started playing, you know, I thought improvisation was, Oh, well, let me just get up there and wing it and play a few notes but there's a lot more to it than it, it looks easy because it should. That's what a proficient musician does is make it look easy. But there's a lot of study and analysis and 
understanding of music composition and music theory that has to go into it before you can attempt to take your first step at playing improvisational music. And that's where there's jazz, there are improv imp improvisations and classical music. I mean, every there's improvisations in, in rock and roll. Um, so you have to really understand the science of music to make it sound as effortless uh, as it does. Um, so having said all that, there is a lot of um, science in music, but there's a lot of music type theory in science as well. And that's what gives you the ability to see things from different angles and different perspectives. You have to have a creative mind to be able to do that. That's why I was saying so um, um, engineers are very linear. That's no, uh, it's not to denigrate anything that, that they do. It's tremendously impactful. But, um, and engineers will tell you this, um, they're, and, and again, these, these are generalisms, but they're not the most um, uh, spontaneous uh, kind of personalities in the world. And spontaneity is what helps music be as, um, as emotive as it is. Let's just try it out. Let's, yeah. see, let's see how this goes. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It, it seems that you really are a create, a creative individual. I always thought that there was so much science behind law. Mm-hmm. And very linear as well, where you had mm -hmm. to follow these seven things for this case to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't seem like the case. Well, so if you dissect the law, um, there's what's known as procedural law, and then there's substantive. And procedural uh, is the boring stuff. That's the rules that you have to follow. Uh, and it's funny, this is all very foreign to me when I was uh, studying law, but, you know, there's, there, are, um, there, are, there are literally code books for criminal procedure or civil procedure. And what that is is how do you file a complaint? You know, how do you craft a complaint? How do you file it? How much time do you have to get that done? How much time do you have to answer? And these are very strict rules. If you miss the time to answer a complaint, then that's it. You know, you could lose right on the spot. It's called default. You've defaulted on your opportunity to say something in opposition to that complaint. So those are the uh, rote rules that everybody has to follow. There's no flexibility. There's no cre You can't riff on um, procedure. Um, you can have creative arguments, but you know, at the end of the day, the rule is the rule. So the fault. I swear you. I, I just it's in my ear. Um, a a fault default a default uh -huh. it it happens within a like 
within in court or is it something that I've sent over and we're waiting for a reply? This more often than not, uh, or these rules more often than not are the things that you need to do to get into court. Now there are rules that apply when you're arguing a case or arguing a motion before a judge. But um, these are the rules. These are the steps you have to do to have your issue determined uh, in a court of law. So things like time are very important. How do you, um, and this, excuse me, there's literally a rule for time. So how do you uh, count days, right? It's okay. That seems like it should be easy. You know, but if, and I'm a little rusty on this now, but, you know, if it's a 10-day period, then that's 10 business days. But if it's 30 days, you count weekends also. It's those kinds of things that you have to know, right? And it's right there in the rule. You know, go to the rule in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, and it tells you how to calculate time. So if I have 30 days to respond to a complaint and I don't get my answer or other, you know, um, pleading in until 31 days, I missed the time. And time is important because there are penalties for missing those marks. You have to hit those marks. That's what's not negotiable. That's what can't be played with. Now, you can go and cry to the court, you know, oh, my, my uh, hamster died or, you know, the mailman ate my homework. I mean, you can go and try and uh, whine, complain, or argue your way out of it, but the rules are the rules. But the substantive practice of law, that's or the substantive part of lawyering, that's where this is um, the, the uh, essence of the matter that's an issue. That's where you have more creativity. That's where you can say, okay, um, the outcome of this issue more often than not has been X in the state of Texas. But Texas also looks to matters, let's say, argued in Florida. And there are five cases in Florida that have gone my way, the way that I'm arguing. So judge, yes, you have um, the flexibility as the, you know, the arbiter of the law to determine which way is this going to go. That's what judges do, right? So, um, uh, man, this is getting way down uh, the pike, but there are things like precedent. You hear it when they talk about the Supreme Court. You know, what has the court done previously or what previous decisions have been out there? So that's what you follow. That's what you follow. But if you can say, but hey— you know, in the, uh, this law originally came or this ruling originally came from Great Britain. And, you know, there are cases that go back to the 1600s where judges have said X, Y, Z. So even though courts in Texas have leaned in this uh, direction, give us some flexibility, judge, because Florida has said this and Great Britain has leaned on that. So that's where it's a bit more... Uh, of the artistry of lawyering as opposed to the rote black and white rules in the on the procedural side. How does the judge end up deciding 
if both cases have existed with mm-hmm. op- with winning with opposites winning, yeah, yeah, then is it purely opinion based and dependent on the situation? Well, you know, it's it's what have courts said previously? Um, what are the arguments that Ben put? that were more persuasive than the arguments that Greg put. So that's where the power of advocacy comes in, and that's where the creativity of the lawyer comes in, right? So that's where, that's why I was saying, that side of the law is a lot more like um, improvisational jazz than the procedure side, which is more like classical music. It is what it is. That's it. Improvisational jazz is, well, there's a theme, but hey, here's how we're going to work with that theme. right? This is what I'm going to give you back, Judge. So that's how it works. I mean, there's some things are what we call black letter law, right? And judges are don't have the flexibility to go beyond um, a ruling that's directly on point that answers the question. That's how that goes. But if there's any kind of um, um, wiggle room, that's what lawyers get paid to do. Find the gaps. Find where the daylight's coming through. Find where I can weasel in, and it's probably a term that most lawyers would hate, but weave in an argument that's going to help my client's uh, cause of action. So that's where the artistry of lawyering comes in. Can I consider that sales? There's a fair amount of salesmanship, uh, certainly in trial practice. That's what I used to do, um, particularly if you're before a jury. Um, you know, there's so much of the human condition that goes into making those kinds of presentations from the suit you wear to the shine and type of your shoes to the I'm a bow tie wearer so you know what what bow ties were we going to have on today because when, when juries get back in in the jury room they talk about all sorts of things yeah they're there to focus on the case but you know one of the it's funny I used to uh, be an instructor with uh, the Attorney General's Advocacy Institute when I was with the Department of Justice and um one of the challenges with can I, that... Can I pause you and ask yeah. you what exactly that is? Oh, oh that is uh, an institute where federal trial attorneys come to uh, brush up and practice their skills before they go into court. So FBI lawyers will come, Justice Department lawyers from all across the country, U.S. attorneys come to that. And sometimes um, uh, trial attorneys from the JAG Corps, J- Judge Advocate General in the military. So they will send their lawyers there. Um, and it's like a trial advocacy school. And what they would do is they would bring in um, federal judges from around the country. And it's almost like a moot court session, right? So you get Uh, One side of a problem, your opponents get the other side. You have a federal judge, um, you know, who who might be on a break from his or her uh, work in whatever court around 
the country and they're there uh, as a real world judge acting as a real world judge before these sets of lawyers and it's your job to you know work with your partner and work up your case split up who's going to do what who's going to um, uh, examine which witnesses who's going to do the opening and do the closing um, so when I first did that in the Justice Department um, the problem was the course was taught in Washington DC and I was based out of DC um, other lawyers came from around the country so for them it was I've got a two-week period where I'm just focused on this but much like every other endeavor if that sort of activity is happening in your hometown, you never get to leave work, right? Folks say, oh, yeah, Greg, you know, you'll be over there for the next two weeks, but you got your caseload, you got, you're responsible for uh, staying on top of your case. So there's not, nothing that you can give to someone else. Hey, I'm going to be busy for two weeks. Can you sit on this for me? No, that doesn't happen. So you wound up going to this uh, institute during the day and then working at night, right? So it was twice as much work. So I told my co-counsel, um, uh, a woman who also was in uh, the D.C. office at the Justice Department, I said, look, uh, our jury were um, kids from high schools in D.C. And this is when L.A. Law was out. And I told her, and we had two um, FBI agents that were lawyers on the other side and they were like right out of central casting um, stiff as a board by the book you know just you, know, <laughs> real, <laughs> you get it right? <laughs> yes. um, and they were you know they were they were really uh, difficult to deal with um, so I told my co-counsel said look this is what we're going to do. I want you to deliver a killer opening. I'll deliver the closing. And we'll just we'll just wing it through the witnesses and whatnot. Don't, don't worry about factual presentation. All right. I said, these are high school kids. And what they are used to seeing, because they don't have any real world experience, so they're used to seeing L.A. Law. Right? L.A. Law in the 80s was one of the biggest shows on TV. It was about life in this fictional um, Hollywood, California law firm office with the glitzy Porsche driving partner and the nebbishy tax lawyer and, you know, all of these uh, different ca- you know, arch- you know, archetypes of, or caricatures of what they thought lawyers were. So I said to her, give a killer opening and said, I'll nail the closing. I said, we'll win this. Um, that's what we did. She gave a drop dead killer opening and then I did the closing and, um, we won. (laughs) And then we had an, and the FBI agents were just mad as heck because they knew we just completely punted everything else in the middle of the trial. I was like, look, we, we unfortunately have to work. (laughs) <laughs> we don't have time like they do to play this game to play this game all week. Just do the opening and closing and we'll be fine. So um we uh, the FBI agents were just beside themselves, irate. <laughs> yeah. 
And um, we we talked to the jury uh, afterwards, and you know the judge asked them. You know, this is their first time in the presence of a judge. Um, and and one of the lines I used, it's funny, I still remember it. Um, it was it was a case about somebody who slipped and fell at a like the Navy Memorial. Uh, uh, federal facility uh, in D.C., and they were suing for, for injuries. And, um, you know, uh, I had on uh, reading glasses for a fact, and I took them off, and I just said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, where does it all end? Where does it all end? Is it is the federal government to be responsible for someone who can't walk and chew gum at the same time, Right. And the FBI agents are, objection, you're right, objection. And the judge is like, this is just argument, yeah, just this argument. Um, so that's how that went. And uh, here's Boomer. It's, yeah, no, right. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, guys. Just that, that's a, a great way to win. Yeah, yeah. So when we talked to the kids afterwards, the judge said, well, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, uh, you've seen uh, the lawyers. And how are their presentations? What was most uh, convincing for you? And there was about four young ladies, and they just grabbed their chest and said, where does it all end? Where does it all end? <laughs> so that's what I meant by the artistry, the, the salesmanship, the, um, the ability uh, to act and portray and, and think about what's going to resonate with the jury, the FBI agents lost because they didn't realize who their jury was, right? They couldn't step out of typical FBI training and allow themselves to communicate with these jurors. Now, the challenge there is they tell us as um, federal, excuse me, as federal trial lawyers, don't let your personalities win the cases. As federal attorneys, we live and die by the law and the truth. And that's fine. But I had practiced in a firm before that, so I wasn't about to give up a little bit of sizzle just because they wanted steak. So I sold them the sizzle, and that's what won it, right? But what it did, though, and I, and I don't know where those FBI agents are now. I'm sure they haven't changed a bit. <laughs> but what the judge said to them was, you need to understand and appreciate, because you'll see what Mr. Winfrey did um, in defense lawyers as you go out and prosecute your cases throughout the rest of your careers. Um, so be cognizant and, and mindful about your strategies to make sure you prevail, right? It's not to win at all costs. That's not what you want from government lawyers. But if you're going to be effective, you have to understand and appreciate and anticipate that that's what you'll see from the other side. And, you know, take this as a lesson because <laughs> Winfrey took you to school is what he told <laughs> It's... Being able to read your audience and then being able to adapt using the knowledge that you've exactly. gained through 
your your schooling, which mm-hmm. is not which sounds like not not a whole heck of a lot, but schooling and life experience, seeing yeah. how judges react or how are are there similarities between judges like either in the same is it the same day court or mm-hmm. is it the same state do you see similarities judges are a whole different animal right jurors are lay people um so you have a much greater opportunity to plug in to their expectations than you do a judge judges are very tricky and the best way to approach a judge is more like the FBI lawyers, right? Don't get cute. They've seen it all. Don't try and be funny. They've seen it all. Be respectful. Be honest. Um, be concise. And sit out. <laughs> don't don't grandstand. Don't tap dance. They don't want to. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. Uh, I'll never forget. I had a asbestos matter can't remember where it was or when it was in my career but there was a lawyer who was very way over the top with his presentation and um he had a really thick boston accent and this is in virginia so he was already out of place right well, your honor what we're trying to do here, right? And the judge was just he's like, look, you know, it's a warm Friday. I'd rather be on the golf course, right? I don't have time for this foolishness. So, I mean, he literally, you know, put that lawyer in his place, made him sit down. He said, I've had enough of your stuff today. Sit down and let your co-counsel uh, present what, you know, what this matter is or where we are in this matter. So, yeah, you don't, you don't, play with judges just straight to the point just deal with the thing because like, everybody wants to just be done and go home that's right that's right how long yeah. do these cases last i mean that very length but on is there an average there's no such thing as an average cool no no there's some litigation particularly with water law now you would say to yourself what the heck is water law um doesn't make a whole lot of sense to those of us who have always had water around as a resource. But out west, and I found this out when I moved to Arizona, and I was at some function and, uh, you know, introduced myself to someone. And I said, oh, well, what do you do? They said, I'm a water lawyer. I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> a water lawyer? It turns out the water issues, as you're seeing um, played out right now uh, in the west, are huge. So where we are right now, Lake Powell and Lake Mead are at the lowest point since those canyons were closed up in the 30s and turned into reservoirs. Um, They are now more likely than not beyond the point of being recharged in our lifetime, right? So if you go to where Lake Powell or Lake Mead is, it's like a bathtub ring. You'll see 150 in some places 200 feet down right you know a bleach mark on the canyon walls where the water used to be i mean there are islands that 
are popping up that have never been seen, you know, in, in Las Vegas. They're finding barrels with uh, dead dead wise guys that the mob no. just go, oh, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, they're popping up, right? So, you know, uh, Joey Two Fingers back in the <laughs> <laughs> when Vegas was no, getting constructed. He was always here all along. That's right. He went on a skiing trip. You know? <laughs> He's at the bottom of Lake Powell and Lake Mead. So that's a huge issue. So all of that water that's been mismanaged um, historically has had litigation dating that long. I mean, there are water lawsuits that are 100 years old and that, that families have been water lawyers generationally. So when dad retired, his son took over. When the son retired, his daughter took over. So they were families of water lawyers that have been working the same case for that long. What's the point? Is it that big of a case? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are, you know, if you look at, it's principally the Colorado River. The Colorado River provides water um, everywhere, pretty much except Colorado for the most part. (laughs) But every state has their straw stuck into the Colorado River and that irrigates everything uh, from crops to, to drinking water for all of the arid western states, right? To the point where when it gets down to the, to the border with Mexico, it's damn near a trickle. And there's just, they call it acre feet. That's how you measure the amount of water. Acre feet. Yeah. How many, uh, it's the amount of water that an acre would have one foot. Uh, and that's how water is measured. So it's acre cool. feet. Yeah, it's acre feet apportionment um, depending on where the usage is. Um, you know, so, yeah, literally, there are straws stuck in the Colorado River and in the underground aquifers that have been using up that water. You know, and, and the issue is, particularly with underground aquifers, like in a state like Arizona, right? So I was with a mining company, and mining uses tremendous amounts of water. So the way they operated was, okay, we need you know x hundred thousand acre feet of water at this mine here. Um, so in order to have access to it, they would literally buy ranches around the west so that they could trade the acre feet of water in a part that didn't have a mining concession in order to access the water where they were. Wow. So it's a that's why mining companies own such huge tracts of property. The company I was with owned um, um, Gunnison, um, not the mountain range. There was, what am I thinking of? There's a mountain um, in the Gunnison mountain range where they owned it. And the reason I know that was the CEO would go elk hunting there. I mean, it was owned by the company. It's called Red Lady. Um, yeah, so, I mean, they would own those tremendous tracts of property in order to benefit from the water resources so that they could trade those water resources against where they needed water in a more dry part of the state or a more dry part of the West. So it's crazy. Water law. But, yeah, those cases go 70, 80, 100 years. Families, generations keep working the same 
You talk about churning. They keep working the same case <laughs> because every year there's a new filing. Uh, if you look at what's going on in the Sierra Nevada now, what do they get? 12 feet of snow, right? When that snow starts to melt and then uh, the water starts to get replenished, and more often than not, most of it runs off into the ocean. That's a whole nother story. But what happens is on an annual basis, you say, okay, we had a bumper crop of snow this year. We're expecting this additional um, acre footage of water. So we had a settlement agreement a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, that meant Nevada got this much water, Arizona would get that much, New Mexico would get this, but because of the bumper crop, we're going to renegotiate that and uh, reapportion the water resources. So that's why they never, um, you know, they're never resolved because it changes on a periodic basis depending on the water resources that are available. So it'll never. Nope. So. Nope. These attorneys that are working these cases, mm -hmm. how are they being paid to do this work? Um, more often than not, by the state, right? So they are they are private lawyers that represent the state or represent counties uh, or other interests. Sometimes uh, Native American tribes, right? Because they're all part of this as sovereign nations as well. In um, having their water rights adjudicated as part of this whole mishmash of, of lawsuits that's been around forever. They're just trying to hang out. Yeah. They're just trying to live yeah. on their land. Trying to, trying to live on their land and trying to, you know, um, have, have the enjoyment of what their ancestors left them. So it's crazy stuff. It is. It, everything is so... There's, a, there's an entire world... Mm -hmm. behind every detail the devil's in the details really is so true yeah yeah it it's a little overwhelming at times it is it is uh, you know and and so that's the the challenge that you 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 pointed out i mean how do you it's impossible to know everything about everything right it's funny i had a i had a high school teacher once said everything has its own little thing you know very new york way to put it <laughs> yeah, but it was so right true, yeah. everything has its own and maybe not little thing everything has its own thing every little thing has everything like i don't know yeah like, it, that's right yeah and, and you might know something on the surface but if you start to dig it's every, everything is complex you know and now everything is interrelated but everything independently has its own set of complexities. And somebody is the world's expert in that. Or there are lawyers that do that. Or there are engineers that have made that their their life's work. You know? That's that's why one thing we used to say about the AM um, universe is, you know, there's an expert who's made his or her life's career on the third left leg, you know, of a Japanese beetle, right? <laughs> There's somebody who so, can, right? There's somebody that, that, that is their expertise. So, you know, there's no level of minutia that isn't worthy of uh, analysis and, um, you know, an understanding. It may not interest you, may not interest me, but there's some value in it and somebody's 
Or some some somebodies are focusing on that. It can be transferable. Yeah. The thing that they end up learning, it's like, hey, guys, look. Actually, this applies over here, too. That's right. That's and right. it kind of sounds like I mean, we've heard mining, right? Mm-hmm. And then federal attorney and then TTI, mm-hmm. right? You've been able to have these life experiences. Yeah, yeah. That lets you really see through all these different lenses. It really is time. You cannot create. Yeah. You can't. I can. I cannot be that. Now, no matter how hard I tried, it would just. It wouldn't exist because I haven't had the time. Well, not only that, you know, but like I said, everything is relatable. Um, but to your point, it takes time in each of those endeavors. To get at least more than a superficial understanding, no worry, no no way am I as deep as an Einstein in every topical area, but I know enough to make it applicable, and I know enough to um, ask provocative questions to tease out uh, where we, you know, maybe need to take advantage. But that's just. Some of the things you say, it's time and grade, you know, that's just putting time in and, and it's not being cognizant or conscious about investing time. It's just living, you know, it's just, uh, when, you know, living in experience, uh, until either a, you've gotten all you can out of it. And that's very difficult to do. Uh, or just living or having an experience until it no longer makes sense for the person you are at that time. Right. So there's no, I'm not a five year plan person, um, but I'll invest time until it, until I can't get any more juice uh, from that orange. Did you, were you ever a five year plan guy and then realize? No. No, no, I, I'm uh, I'm not a planner in that respect, um, and I'll tell you why. So when I went to the Department of Transportation, uh, I told you I went in uh, in the Obama administration. I was a political appointee, and I was chief counsel for the research arm of the Department of Transportation, and I was in that role for eleven months. And then the deputy went back to academia, and Secretary Ray LaHood said, Greg, I'd like you to step in uh, and take over as deputy. You've been effective as chief counsel. People appreciate and, 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 and really resonate with your leadership style. Fine. Well, four months after that, um, the administrator voted himself off the island, and Ray LaHood said, well, Greg, it's all yours now. And I was like, uh-uh, what does that mean, right? <laughs> I'm smiling when I say to myself, oh, hell. <laughs> What's next? What is this entail? Uh, yeah, because I was used to, in my career, the benefit of being a lawyer, I heard a comedian once say this, I was the man sitting next to the man, right? So I wasn't the one um, that had the Klieg lights on for a Senate hearing or, you know, getting grilled with microphones, other than now, in the face uh, if something goes wrong. That's what the CEO did, right? That's what the agency 
director did. That's what the administrator did. The chief counsel provided advice, was a sounding board, uh, came up with strategy. But at the end of the day, more often than not, the chief counsel isn't the one in front of the mics, right? Um, There are instances where that is the case, but more often than not, people don't want to hear from the general counsel. If something happened, positively or negatively, they want to hear from the boss. So that's what I meant by saying man sit next to the man. Um, If there was a congressional hearing and the administrator was there, um, I might have been what we called a plus one, right? So I was either... Uh, you know, at the witness table next to the boss or in a seat behind him, right? If there was a camera going, I was on camera, but folks would be like, well, who's that guy with the bow tie sitting behind, <laughs> right? Who's that guy? So that was me, right? Right there. And that's what lawyers do. I mean, that's where you, that's the, unless you're in court and, and doing stuff on your feet. If you're in an advisory role, that's what you do. That's That's where you find yourself. Uh, more often than not. So when I had the chance, when when the hood said, well, it's all yours now, that's why I was like, wait a minute. So I'm now the guy in front of the league lights, you know, uh, uh, sweating because it's hot and getting asked tough questions. Oh, heck, what does that mean, right? So um, I went from uh, chief counsel uh, to administrator but to the point I was making about uh, not making five-year plans or whatnot. Um, Before you answer that, did, yeah. you find, did it feel good? Was it was it mm-hmm. like you had gained new responsibility? Yes, sir. So because it was an organization that had four politically appointed leaders, the administrator, the deputy, chief counsel, that was me, and government relations. There were four of us who were appointed by the administration to lead that agency. So when the deputy left, I was deputy, but also chief counsel. Might have covered two spaces. One salary, but two spaces. And you were the, if I remember correctly, one of the only people to have ever done that. Yes, yes. And then when the administrator left, I was acting administrator, deputy, and chief counsel. So now I'm covering three. I hope the American people appreciate, you know, my contribution. But <laughs> not three salaries. Not three salaries. <laughs> three jobs. Um, but, you know, so to the point about uh, not making uh, plans, my, my whole theory when I took the chief counsel role, and I probably told you this earlier, but I had come from a corporate experience and my job was litigation counsel. I was the guy um, who handled or managed the litigation portfolio for the company. Um, the challenge with litigation, though, it's um, it's on the liability side of the ledger, right? People see it as um, we're the people that show up after the champagne is drunk. You know, <laughs> something has gone wrong with the contract <laughs> that all y'all champagne drinkers put together. Nobody wants to own it now. 
right? Success, what do they say, <laughs> is a million fathers, defeat is an orphan. <laughs> so I had the orphans, and, and nobody wanted to take, a, oh, yeah, no, that was me that signed that, Greg. Yeah, yeah, I'll help you out. No. So litigation, as necessary as it was because it was something important to the operation of a corporation, was not something that was viewed favorably. That doesn't mean the person. Everybody loved the person. We're glad you're here doing that. But boy, when I would come down the hallway, executives would scatter. Oh, Lord, here comes Winfrey. <laughs> who's gotten sued now? Right? <laughs> and who's, Whose budget does he need? And whose witnesses does he need to pull out of productive work to waste time on these lawyer, lawyer stuff? So that's what happens with litigation counsel. So I went into this chief counsel role thinking, and because of that that perception of litigation, it's hard for litigators to become general counsel in corporations. It's not unheard of, but it's rare. Um, they always want to work with the folks who were at the front end that put the contracts together and popped the champagne when the deals are getting cut, right? And then when the deals go sour... Nobody's around. Nobody's taking ownership, right? That's when I show up. So it's tough to move into what's what I would call the profit side of the ledger, right? Having been on the loss side of the ledger, so I said, okay, I'll go into the Department of Transportation. I'll be chief counsel, and when I come out of this experience, the only thing I'll be looking for are general counsel roles. I'll be have built that credibility as a general counsel. So that was my thinking. So go in, uh, 11 months later, deputy leaves. LaHood says, you're the deputy. Four months after that, the administrator gets voted off the island. He says, it's all yours now. Um, so I was having a conversation with my mother, and she was saying, you know, it really is tremendous how these things have worked out. She said, but here's what's interesting, Greg. You went there thinking that your career home run was to be chief counsel. She said, but what happened was you got there and God moved those two other guys right out the way and put you where he wanted you all along. So I had to sit back and kind of reflect on that, you know, because mom is never wrong, right? But I mean, it was tremendously powerful what she said, but, you know, she was right. And it was that series of experiences that then propelled me to the front of the line to head up the Texas A&M Transportation Institute. You know, having led that federal agency at that level uh, in that space as a lawyer, um, which probably was, it was certainly unheard of in the federal government to have a lawyer run the research agency. Uh, so to have a lawyer come to Texas A&M and run the research agency only made sense because I had done it at the federal level, right? So all of that, that lane was cleared. Um, but because of those kinds of experiences, I've learned uh, throughout my career that I'm not in charge of anything, right? I need to be prepared exquisitely. I need to be... Um, I need to have the clarity of vision to not miss an opportunity, right? To not think that it's 
too big for me, to not think that it's too small for me, to not think that, oh, this is just a lateral position, right? You've, I've got to have the clarity of vision or I've developed the clarity of vision to soberly analyze when opportunities present uh, and uh, take maximum or maximal opportunity uh, uh, at that at that time. So that's how I've allowed my career uh, to progress. Because um, you know, like I said, I started out at a law firm, and I stayed there just about three years, uh, right out of law school, because I had worked there as a law clerk, meaning I was a law student that you know helped them with um, uh, at a lower billing rate. Uh, with matters that it made much more um, economic sense for me to do. So I got exposed to the law firm. I got exposed to the lawyers. I was valued for what I brought to the table. But when I became a full-time lawyer there, I couldn't or they couldn't separate me from that uh, Johnny-do-it-all role that I had. So I kind of called myself the garbage associate because... The other lawyers were dedicated to one group. You know, one lawyer worked with real estate. One of the ladies worked with uh, environmental law. One of the gentlemen worked with government contracts. And then I worked with literally 16 different partners over a six-month period because they were so used to... Greg's a brilliant researcher. Greg's a brilliant writer. Greg can get things done. Right, he's the kind of guy where we can fire stuff off, and he'll just get it done. But that didn't allow me to build up the depth of relationships that would have made my professional, as opposed to my student, experience uh, rewarding and meaningful. That is that seems like madness. Mm-hmm. That just seems entirely. Unfair. I don't know if that's okay to say, but that just yeah, it seems yeah. it just not okay. Like how, and I, I, it's unfortunate that a lot of times the person who wants to do a lot of good mm-hmm, mm-hmm. ends up being what's the word? Um, not, not not mistreated, but. Um, what kind of, I wouldn't call it undervalued, misvalued, if that's a, and that's not a real word. But that's what it was. I was valued but um, and appreciated, but there wasn't, uh, nobody put their arm around me as this guy's on my team, like they did. There were six of us who joined as first-year lawyers. The other five, and I'll tell you how that resonated. So uh, I started in, in, in uh, 87 with the firm. Um, and graduated in 89. And in 91, there was a recession. And this is all conjecture because I wasn't in the room, but I'm pretty sure that this is how it went. So when um, income starts to shrink in a partnership, right, what that means is uh, the way law firms are structured, like any partnership, but the way it ha- the way it works is, once the proceeds are brought in the door, and the secretaries are paid, and facilities, and and 
the copy machines are bought, and then the associate lawyers are paid, money left over is then split amongst the partners. Um, some law firms, that's 900000 Some law firms, that's $2 million. So when that happens in a recession and the money starts to get a little, not tight, this is all relevant, <laughs> but tighter... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's still after $2 million. <laughs> well, I do have to fill my 42 foot birch room. I mean, God forbid, man. So, um, uh, the lawyers get a little grouchy, right? The partners get a little grouchy. So then it's okay, well, we're carrying too much. What can we cut? And let's talk about, you know, because associates, and just like uh, every partnership practice, those who aren't the partners are expendable. Um, matter of fact, they used to say at the firm I joined, the law firm partners had name tags that were screwed into the wall. The associates had slide in and slide out name tags, right? Because, and we asked them, we said, well, well why is that? They said, well, associate is a temporary position. You're either going to be a partner <laughs> Or you get the hell out, right? It was as simple as that. Will you like it or not? That's how this world works. Um, so 1991, partners are sitting around and they're having a conversation. Uh, boy, we got a real bumper crop with these young lawyers. They're doing great things. They said, well, well who's got Vince? Oh, we have Vince on the government contracts team. Oh, good, good. Who's got Paula? Oh, well, we have Paula on uh, environmental Okay, okay. Who's got Sherry? Oh, Sherry's ours on real estate. Great, great. Well, who's got Greg? Wow, what a tremendous researcher and writer he is. I mean, we've worked with him since 87 when he was a law student. The guy's phenomenal. Oh, yeah, he did work for us in international law. Really? He did work for us in FCC stuff. Oh, that's great, great. We didn't ask that. We said, whose team is he on? And everybody did like this and kind of looked around and it was like, cheaty, cheaty, cheaty. So to your point, or to my point, my point, to your point, our point, about being misvalued, um, when the rubber hit the road, to get back to a transportation analogy, but it was tough times and, and partners tightening their belts as to who were they going to continue to fund to support their legal practice, um, I was odd man out. It was... He, he's done tremendous work. We love the guy. He even plays golf. He's a great golfer. But, um, yeah, I wasn't on anybody's team, right? So I had to find something else to do. And that's when I went to the Justice Department. Um, um, and, again, these are all points about why I don't have five-year plans. So yeah. went to the Justice Department. And I enjoyed what I was doing. I was in the housing section. That was a good Yeah. <laughs> I was in the housing section. And, um, you know, prosecuting cases. My region was the South. That's the first um, opportunity for me to learn Texas. I had a lawsuit against the Dallas Housing Authority uh, because they had cited a lead smelter downwind or upwind uh, from a minority housing project. And there was a pond in front of that housing project where kids would swim because Dallas is hot. Texas gets hot, as I've been learning firsthand. <laughs> um, but the lead levels in that lake were off the charts. 
and we had done some testing with Health and Human Services kids. IQs were were, were significant percentages diminished because of their exposure to um, lead, either in this pond or just in the air from particulate matter. I mean, the smoke literally blew out of the stacks and fell on this community. There was lead dust in the hallways of the buildings, right? Just, just Damn. unconscionable what yeah. had happened. Um, so that's the kind of stuff I was doing, and I really... Uh, got a lot of uh, satisfaction from from that kind of work. Um, but I guess I was there just about three years, and I got a call from a partner who I had worked with at the law firm. Um, and and I had done some work for him, and we had a historic um, uh, achie- achievement, excuse me, uh, in a case in the state of Maryland. Um, so... I was one of his, you know, rock star young lawyers, but uh, his practice was, we call it pro bono, right? So he didn't make money. We we, we represented a town in the state of Maryland uh, that didn't have a lot of money. Like I said, phenomenal result, but he couldn't afford to, to by himself, just employ me. So fine. But he recalled that this guy's phenomenal. And um, he had gotten a call um, from some folks affiliated with Union Carbide. And Carbide at the time was looking to bring in two sets of lawyers, uh, two lawyers that were five to six years out of law school, which is the years that I was at that time, and a more senior lawyer, 10 years out. And they wanted to bring them into the corporation to uh, handle, they wanted lawyers who had been in court because they wanted to bring um, expensive litigation work inside the company and bring those costs down. Um, and they wanted a diverse team. Um, so, you know, the company did what most companies do. They went with headhunters, and the headhunters said, oh, there's just nobody out there. Oh, God, we'd really like to accommodate you. We just, we just can't find anybody. And uh, fortunately, six months of contract salary, please. Yeah, well, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but Vernon Jordan uh, was on the board, and Vernon Jordan um, passed fairly recently. Uh, but he was a president whisperer. He started. Um, um, well, he had been earlier in his career the president of the Urban League and became a Washington power player. Uh, to the point where when Bill Clinton was in office, he hosted Bill Clinton at his summer home. They used to call it the Summer White House. So again, he was the man sitting next to the man. That's where I learned this from, from Vernon Jordan, because he was like, uh, don't seek to be a politician. Seek to be the person sitting next to the politician. That's the power position. Um, so he was a mentor of mine, but prior to me meeting him, he was on the board of Union Carbide. Carbide wanted this team with these uh, three lawyers, and when the headhunters came back and said, we tried our hardest, and there's just no one there, Vernon said, hey, that's bullshit. I'll find you somebody. So he put the word out. Pardon. Can I say that on this podcast? Okay. okay. <laughs> yes. um, so he put the word out. Uh, to his network, and the word got to this partner who I had worked with, 
And uh, he put my name before these folks. And I ultimately got on Vernon Jordan's radar screen. And uh, it was funny because um, the partner I work with put me in touch with a partner at another firm. Right now I'm at the Justice Department. And this guy's grilling me, right? And he's, well, okay, well, what blood type did you say you are again? And, uh, okay, what shoe size do you wear? I mean, it's re- it was ridiculous, the amount of questions he had. Um, but finally, at the end of the process, he said, well, okay, I, I guess you sound like a good candidate. Um, I'd like you to call Vernon Jordan next. And that's why I was like, excuse you? Who? <laughs> All right, so... Um, this guy put me in touch with Vernon Jordan, and everything took off from there. But what was interesting was, now I had gone to St. John's University in New York, and when I met the general counsel of Union Carbide, he had gone to St. John's. And his story was interesting. He was one. He had been at Carbide 40 years, but he was one of those kids that in the 40s and 50s was literally the water boy for the executives. He started out pushing the cart with ice water and would go in the executives' offices. This is back when they used to smoke and smoke cigars. Uh, hello? Yeah, yeah, put some water in there, Joe. You know, so that was his job. Wow. And then the company put him through college. So he went to St. John's University uh, and then ultimately another New York school, Fordham Law School, and wow. joined the law department. These are stories that... Uh, uh, don't happen. They don't. Not to That's... guys like you and me, right? That, that just ain't happening, right? No. It, and and it's very rare nowadays. Uh, it wasn't unheard of, though, back in the 40s and 50s when New York City was blowing and going, and, and it was like Mad Men. Right? If you keep that in mind, that's what corporations were like uh, in in that era. And Carbide was known as the Irish Mafia, right? So it was a lot of... Uh, Irish Americans that worked in that company, and the general counsel was an Irish gentleman. And uh, St. John's had a strong Irish population because it's a Catholic school, much like Fordham. Um, so when he found out I went to St. John's, not only uh, you know was I the lawyer he was looking for, but I also went to his alma mater, the one that lifted and started his progression to where he resided at that time as the general counsel. He called Vernon Jordan right away. Vernon, how did you find this guy? None of the search firms could find anybody. Not only do you find me the right guy, but he went to St. John's. You're a water walker. So, water walker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> that really resonated with Vernon, right? Because even though Vernon's on the board of directors, he's got to maintain a relationship with the executive. So if somebody calls and starts singing the praises of what their board, their director did, it's a it's a two-way street, right? So he was uh, very appreciative um, of that. But literally, so that's how I got, uh, that's how I left the Justice Department, leaving what I enjoyed, um, following on, as I said earlier, um, not missing an opportunity. I had a young lady who I worked with once who said, I don't turn down opportunities. I turn down offers. I was like, oh, okay. Let me file that away. I like that a lot. Yeah, isn't that, yeah that's deep, isn't it? Yeah. So I said, okay. So, um, and i never forget, I said to my mother at the time, because she was like, well, is this something that you're interested in? And, and 
I had a financial number in mind, right? And I thought it was outlandish. I think I was making like 55000 at the Justice Department. And I said, well, Ma, I mean, if they say something like, I don't know, 80000 I'd probably go, right? Because it was in Connecticut, and it was north of where I grew up. And they said, uh, yeah, the salary's 80000 I was like... <laughs> so here I go, right? You hold packed up, here I go. <laughs> so uh again though, I mean that was something that that came up in in I recognized an opportunity. I said, let me go on the interview, see what it's all about, because I don't turn down opportunities, I turn down offers, and it it, it worked out, right? So um that's how Vernon Jordan then got to be my mentor. And the reason he did was after I got the job, I had uh, sent him a thank you letter. And, excuse me, it just said, you know, Mr. Jordan, I greatly appreciate your your trust and, and faith in me. I promise that I will do everything I can to ensure that your reputation uh, in, in making this opportunity available is always stellar. Um, so that's like the first two weeks when I got there. Well, I get a call maybe 10 days later, um, right? So I'm the new guy. Uh, there's two black lawyers in the law department, the department of about 40 lawyers. Um, and uh, there was this hubbub in the hallway and all of these executive assistants are huddled together and they're like, Vernon Jordan's on the phone. He wants to talk to Greg, the new guy. And they're all like, Vernon Jordan, you mean the board of directors? They only call and talk to the general counsel. They don't call and talk to some knucklehead peon junior lawyer, right? But um, I took the call, of course. Of course. And uh, he said, uh, Gregory, I'd just like to say to you that I've been making opportunities available for people for well over 30 years. And this is the first time I've ever received a note of thanks. And I was floored, right? I mean, this is what, so I said, mom is never wrong. That's what she told me to do. Whenever um, you have an opportunity, you send a thank you note. And that's what I did. So to hear that somebody at his level had extended himself on behalf of others, and they, you know, just just took it as, as a rite of passage or, or were, weren't as thankful as they should have been, just floored me, right? So because I did that, Vernon Jordan knew who I was. And Vernon Jordan invested time in me um, and, and you know, was my mentor from, from that point forward. So I stayed at Carbide almost eight years, um, probably longer than I would have liked career-wise. But um, I knew I was Vernon Jordan's designee. Right, and that was important to uh, have that reflected. But the company got bought by Dow um, Chemical Corporation, and I had no I had no intention of moving to Midland, Michigan, the duck capital of Michigan. <laughs> their their selling point was, "Oh, we're 110 miles from Detroit." I was like, "I don't want to go to Detroit." Is that the selling point? Is that what you got? So. <laughs> I, I joined Wyeth Pharmaceuticals in outside of Philadelphia and stayed there four years. Wyeth was a, a, a zoo. Um, this is uh, this might be ancient history for you, but there was a 
period in time where there were some diet drugs that were sold. It was called Redux and Fen-Fen. I know Fen-Fen. Yeah. And that started to cause something known as primary pulmonary hypertension in folks, which more often than not had a fatal outcome. So people were dying from taking this diet drug. Um, so the company was mired in fighting off those lawsuits. So the way they handled it was all of the lawyers worked on diet drugs except Greg. Greg had to handle every other drug litigation for every product that they had, plus salesmen, car crashes. That's what I did. It was ridiculous. Plus, for every, um, they call them detail people, every salesperson crash, I had to write a settlement memo to the general counsel that explained why we needed to settle these lawsuits. And every memo had to mention whether or not the salesperson had on his or her seatbelt. It was the most ridiculous, nonsensical, idiotic way to run a business. And I just had enough after four years. So then, that's one instance where I left because I was fed up. Uh, but I had an opportunity in Phoenix, Arizona to join that copper mining company we were talking about. And I was uh, chief litigation counsel. So before the age of 40, I was the lead litigation lawyer for a Fortune 500 company. Um, and that was, I really enjoyed Phoenix. Um, great place to live. Um, company was great. Enjoyed that experience. But um, when I was working there for the mining company, that's when I got an email um, from a former, well, from a good friend of mine who overlapped my time at the Department of Justice. Um, and somebody who he worked with after I departed was the Deputy General Counsel of the Department of Transportation, and they were looking to bring lawyers in who had um, real-world experience, in-court experience, could help government do its work more efficiently. And they were like, Greg, would you be interested? So the timing was good. Now, I joined a company called Phelps Dodge, um, while I was there, Phelps Dodge got bought out by a competitor, Freeport McMoran. So to the earlier point about the conveyor belt, um, it was one of those instances where they said, Greg, you're a great guy. You're the kind of guy that's going to wind up being the general counsel here one day. Keep doing what you're doing. We got our eye on you. Perfect. And then he said, oh, yeah, we've got to tell you, we sold the company. <laughs> so as I looked out my window, I saw all these people with golden parachutes, you know, waving as they went by. I was like, wow, wonder how I get one of those. The answer was, you don't. So I was on the new team now, and uh, the new general counsel came in and said, Greg, we like you a lot. You're doing a great job, and we know you thought you were going to be general counsel, but... Uh, we got a guy uh, your year out of law school, and he, he knows our board of directors. So we kind of think he's going to be the next general counsel. But stay as long as you like. You know, you got to. So I was like, oh, great. So, you know, I could have retired in place and become a semi-professional golfer, which wasn't unattractive. Um, like I said, the... Phoenix weather was beautiful, beautiful house up in the mountains. But I was like, well, I'm not going to actively 
look, but I'll keep my ears open. And that's when the call came when President Obama got in and they said, you know, Greg, we'd love to have you come join us. So, you know, again, another, now that was just a world-class opportunity. I'll never forget when President Obama was sworn in in 2009, I joined in 2010, March 2010. So in 2009, when he was sworn in, you know, that was the kind of thing that I never thought I'd see in my lifetime as a black person in this country. So to see him sworn in, I'll never forget saying to my wife, you know, I said, Francis, I used to work for the Justice Department in the Civil Rights Division. I don't know everything that he's going to go through as the first black president, but I got a pretty good suspicion of just a portion of it. And I said to her, if there's ever anything I can do to help that brother get four more seconds of sleep a night, I'm all over it. Um, right? So that was um, when he was sworn in, 2009, I get the call in November 2009 about the opportunity and joined in March 2010, but it was following up on that statement I made to my wife, but also um, having the opportunity, as I said, to be a chief counsel that would put me in the uh, realm of general counsel opportunities and, um, you know, uh, jumped on that on that opportunity and, and uh, did more than just make it work. I mean, it was... It was awesome. I mean, one of the first experiences I had. Now, the Phoenix Mercury uh, had just won the WNBA title. And uh, the president, you know, uh, as presidents do, had the winning team come for a congratulatory ceremony in the uh, West Wing of the White House. And my White House liaison, now every executive agency has someone senior uh, who had been usually on the White House or the, the winning president's team, they get dispatched to the agencies, and they are the eyes and ears of the White House at that agency. Well, our White House liaison knew I was from Phoenix. So he was like, hey, Greg, you know, would you like to go on over to the West Wing with the Phoenix Mercury? I was like, hey, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I'm over at the White House. Excuse me. In the West Wing and the Phoenix Mercury are there and the president's taking his photos with the team. And, you know, I'm in the second row. I, I, I can almost touch him. And even better, I can almost touch Diana Taurasi, right? So it was just it was just mind-blowingly awesome. And I went to a state ceremony when the president of Mexico came to visit and they had a formal ceremony on the South Lawn where the helicopter landed and they have this um, military band contingent that dress like they're from, um, uh, almost like redcoats from the Revolutionary War. Okay. And, I mean, it was just pomp and circumstance like you wouldn't believe, but it's the kind <laughs> of carpet they roll out, you know, for a, a, state, uh, a state visit. So I was there for that. I mean, it was just awesome, the things I was getting exposed to and the things I had a chance to do. And the job was awesome as well. Most, but yeah. Most yeah. attorneys would either like not even have the dream because they don't, you know. They that's just, right. You know? That's right. Like, that's the kind of job that was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Secretary Ray LaHood said there are 
10 to 20 people right now that would give an arm to be in the seat you're holding right now. Don't ever forget that. Yeah. And it was just, it was just awesome. It was just awesome. And um, that gets us all the way back around to how I started the story, but that's how I got on the radar screen at Texas A&M and, uh, you know, have been able to uh, fall back on on those experiences and uh, make it work for uh, not just TTI, but for the university system. You know, one of the things, and I never, you know, denigrate the wonderful legislature in the great state of Texas, but in my role at USDOT, on several occasions, I had to testify before the U.S. Senate or for House committees. Um, so now, you know, the legislature meets, it's under the biennium every two years. And every two years, uh, all of the CEOs from the university system go and present uh, before uh, the House and the Senate. And every year, folks just say, Greg, you're right out of central casting. You just so comfortable with this and your command and your voice, the way it just holds such authority. Can you do the presentations for all of us? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, thank you for the opportunity, but no. But um, yeah, I mean, all of those experiences, the radio that I'd done, the theater that I'd done, the singing that I'd done to learn how to project and um, be present you know, is what I carry uh, into this role. And, you know, and, and the fact that I, I, I've been, I, I've been before the big leagues, you know, so I'm extraordinarily appreciative of the opportunity, but, you know, hey, folks, uh, I'm going to give you what you need, and I'm going to give you a little extra, you know, so that you can see how we carry ourselves uh, in the A&M university system. But some people get so keyed up and nervous because they've never done that before. Oh my God, I've got to go before the, the state senate. And, you know, how is Greg so calm and smooth with this? Been there, done that, you know, and have the T-shirt. But um, <laughs> once you're at that level, I mean, you're you're down to one one degree. Yeah, yeah. Even I think one degree, you can see it. It's like if you were in high school playing, you know, JV football. That's right. And that's then you right. make that switch to varsity, you're like, man, this is so much faster. Yeah, that's right. This is another that's level. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is, it is cool, I think, and cool doesn't do any justice, right? But yeah. the impact that I think, the ripple effect is what I think about. Mm-hmm. I think that because other people have gone out to make success, for themselves, mm-hmm. it ripples further than you can imagine for other so many other people. Yeah, if your dad didn't go to college and be the first graduate, oh yeah, then you would have had to be that first one. Yeah, that's right. And that would have it could have changed your your trajectory. Absolutely, and absolutely your ability to adjust to the opportunities in front of you Mm -hmm. and knowing when these opportunities no longer are there for you. Right. It's just not the time. It's not the, whatever your goals might be, they just don't align. And your willingness 
to move away from those things and not set for that substandard quality of treatment. Yep. Yep. Is inspiring. And I mean, personally, it's, I would not be here if it was not for some, a little bit of push at times. Yeah. You know, but just a realization, like, this is there's there's a lot more mm-hmm. to be done. Mm-hmm. Don't hang your hat here. No, no, and, and don't ever accept less than the best because you deserve it. People put you in boxes. People people in boxes. Don't accept that box. So here's a here's a real quick, two quick stories. One, I'm the grandson of sharecroppers from Thompson, Georgia that literally had to shoot their way out because my grandfather was about to be lynched. Um, So I never forget where I came from. And time is compressed. I knew my grandfather, right? I knew my grandmother. Um, I recently did one of those Ancestry.com genealogy stories for my mom. And she got so, I gave it to her for Christmas, my brother and I. She just got so emotional because she it, she just recalled everything in her life and, and saw what her parents had to put up th- with to get her where she is now and where she was and how their meek and humble beginnings put her on a trajectory that was upward and then allowed her and her husband to put my brother and I on a continuous upward trajectory. So I never um, uh, forget uh, that. And there was, I'm sorry, I'm 58 now and I forgot my other point. Now, what were we talking about before I started on that? The two stories, one of them was, I think I was mentioning your your willingness to move and their substandard treatment. Mm-hmm. and That's it. So here's the other story. I was at the mining company, right? And the other company, Freeport, had taken over. And they had this, uh, Freeport is out of uh, New Orleans. And they had less than an enlightened general counsel, right? You always observe things. So I never forget, he had a holiday party. And I went and used their powder room. And the wallpaper they had in their powder room depicted some old homey uh, back-in-the-day pictures. It was almost like they were the kinds of pen and ink drawings from newspapers, period newspapers. But, you know, as I'm sitting there taking a leak, I look over at the wall, and some of the fond remembrances were of darkies unloading cotton bales from a steamship, uh, presumably on the Mississippi. You know, I just I said, well, that's somewhat of an interesting choice in home decor. <laughs> you decided hmm. to put this up. Yeah, yeah. I said, okay, this is what you put. It's one thing to put it in your man cave, cigar room, where people may not ever visit, other than like-minded or invitees. But in the powder room in the front of your home where visitors are likely to see it, 
that's that's pretty darn interesting. Right? So that tells you a little bit about this gentleman's worldview. Um, nice enough guy. Uh, you know, but for the fact that this company brought us together, it's unlikely we ever would have shared the same side of the sidewalk. Um, but, you know, no no qualms, no clashes. He respected me as a professional. I respected him as general counsel. So when the opportunity to go to Washington as chief counsel of the research entity at the Department of Transportation, um, when I, you know, submitted my resignation and told them where I was going, I said, uh, yes, uh, Rick, I'll be heading to Washington. I'm going to be a political appointee uh, and chief counsel in an organization known as the Research and Innovative Technology Administration. And he almost did one of those cartoon, he was like, that's unlike anything you've ever done before in your career. And I kind of sat back and I said, well, Rick, I don't allow your myopia to describe my horizon, you know? So that's what I mean. You can't let someone's narrowness of vision or lack of visual and mental acuity limit what you can do, right? So I helped him understand that what I see for myself is clearly much broader than what your expectation of what I could do, right? So because I don't limit myself to your beer goggles, that's not going to tie me down. So you can sit here and be flabbergasted by something that you thought I couldn't do. But guess what? That's not my, had I bought into your vision, then you're absolutely right. I would have sit here and been thankful for every bread crumb, bread crumb and, and, and cotton bowl that fell off of your tray, sir. But, you know, that ain't how Greg Winfrey gets down, sir. So <laughs> thank you for the opportunity. Here's my address. <laughs> Contact me through President Obama, okay? Thank you. So that's a key message for folks to really understand. Never let somebody tell you who you are or what you can do. Thank you. Love you. Hey, my pleasure, my friend. Appreciate everything you did for me. I, I didn't do much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you want to stay on or you want to... You, hey, that's up to you. You're leaving, you, you know, you... you can, I mean, it's, yeah. it's up to you. Um, I like to leave usually with a note, and that note... It's just... I, I went to an event today where I did a speaking event. Uh-huh. And I was talking about the podcast. Yeah. And as I talked to one of the gentlemen who holds the event, I went to his office and talked to him about it. I was like, well, like, I have these three ideas. And since you're in this industry, this financial industry, like, I'm looking for a little bit more guidance. Do you think that this is, this makes sense? Or do you think that 
uh, it was in regards to healthcare versus um, some, another insurance, and uh-huh. it was more like a you should have done more research before you wasted my time. Mm-hmm. And I'm here because I'm trying to understand, mm-hmm. not just be put off to the side. Right. Right. And then you have, and then, and then I was, and then I had a, another idea. I was like, well, then I'm looking like maybe in the future to do shirts and like, you're doing too much. Mm-hmm. Focus on one thing. That's one thing. I was like, you, like, do you really only focus on one thing? Mm-hmm. And by the end of the conversation, he's like, well, I guess I do that event, and then I do this, and I have all these clients, and then I do, mm-hmm. and you're a father, and you're why can I only do one thing? You invested too much time in that butt wipe. When he said, you should have done more research before you basically wasted my time, I said, oh, oh, thank you very much, and smiled and walked away. Because there's nothing profitable that can come after that. Right? Now you're you're educating this jerk into seeing that you actually do more than one thing also, dumb, dumb. Right? Everybody knows that. But it's my job now to focus you on your life? That's not your job. Thank you very much. Right? Conversation's over. I, right? That's what should have happened. And I won't waste any more of your time. Sorry. Right? Mm-hmm. And no, for next time. This won't be the last time that happens. That's how pe- people are self-absorbed, self-important, and full of crap. Right? So... And so, to bring it back to that not letting other people that's that's part of it mm-hmm. right that event where he was at and we're doing this thing i showed up dressed like if i'm doing a presentation mm-hmm. i was told i'm doing a presentation i, I spent hours on a on full presentation yes and reciting looking at the wall you know practicing for hours mm-hmm. and i showed up with my bag and my, my thing and Sports go dressed up, uh-huh. and we don't do presentations. We we just put the, put the logo up. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Um, that would have been a little nice to know after spending all this time doing this. Right. And they're like, "You dress too nice. Like you you, you went too much. Supposed to be you're supposed to be relaxed. Like we're having mm-hmm. coffee. So I'm representing." myself and this company and and this is not just myself like this is mm-hmm. every single that person that comes on here i'm not just here for me mm-hmm. and i didn't have this mindset until i left right until after i was home and i laid down like oh my god i asked too much i didn't look at i didn't answer mm-hmm. the questions right and that that's where I, I was like, man, did I dress too much? Did I like, did I like? And I spoke well, commanded the room, answered questions. Mm-hmm. It was great. And that gentleman, one, you know, just come come on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I 
got home and finally like relaxed a little bit, I realized why does their either insecurity or whatever whatever is inside of them mm-hmm. why do I let that dictate how I feel? Mm-hmm. That's not okay. Well, it, and it, it's well, it's not uncommon, but you have to live your life for you, right? So, the way these folks talk about me at the system, oh my God, nobody can outdress Greg. You see how he dresses? I dress how I dress because that's how I like to dress. I wear bow ties. I wear braces, suspenders. Right, I I wear pocket squares consistently. That's how I. That, that's the way I was taught that lawyers dress early in my career. And it wasn't so much that they said, "This is your uniform," but I saw how other lawyers dress and said, "That's the style. That's how I'm going to project myself." So, have there been instances where I'm overdressed? Compared to others, absolutely. But you know what? That's how Greg Winfrey gets down. Uh, so if it makes you nervous, <laughs> if you don't, if you're upset because you wore jeans, ain't got nothing to do with me. I'm always gonna be clean. I'm always gonna be appropriate for whatever situation it is. And if you wanna dress down because it's only coffee, knock yourself out. This is how Ben Navarez presents himself and his brand. This is Ben Navarez's brand. That's how that works. That's your brand. So when people see me, they say, we know what Greg Winfrey's brand is. He's going to be clean. That. <laughs> what What is your brand and deciding what that is mm-hmm. and then the standard that you're willing to accept mm-hmm. is... I think the coolest, most powerful thing that you can do. Absolutely. I love it. Yeah. I tell people, it's like people that wear too much fragrance. Right? Your brand arrives in the room before you get there, and it lingers after you leave. That's your brand. Now, don't douse yourself in polo black. That's not what I'm saying, right? (laughs) Consistency establishes your brand. And what I say by when it arrives in a room before you, when people see Ben Navarez on an agenda or on a meeting note, that's what they're talking about before you get in the room. Wait, that's the guy that presented that. No, he was really sharp. And very art, you know, articulate, and 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 you know, I, I like what he's about. That's what gets in the room. See, people diminish or ridicule because they can't meet that standard, or know that they didn't meet it in that instance, or know that their brand is inconsistent. When Ben gets in the room, right, the the conversation before you get there is X. When you step in the room, you didn't disappoint because you delivered on what the conversation before you got in the room was. And when you leave, the conversation still is, I can't believe that guy is that about it. About it, about it, that clean, 
That's what's up. And you don't compromise. There, there is no compromise. Yeah. Even though, at, in afterwards, I immediately afterwards I felt insecure about it that I had done too much. I went to an event tonight where I wore, you know, I, I like these pants, yeah, and, yeah. and I like that shirt, and it's fitting for that setting, and I think it looks spiffy. Yeah, yeah. And everyone else is dressed in t-shirts because yeah. we're we're different, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that we're different. Yep. I want yep. to stand out. And exactly. Sometimes it does put a target on your back in some ways, mm-hmm. but I also think that it leads. It gives you the opportunity to, to have other people see that and be like, oh, wow. Like, set the example. You're mm-hmm. leading from the front. Exactly. It's like my dad said. That's how we started. Just because there's nobody behind you doesn't mean you're not a leader. People see. People notice. It registers. Do Did you intentionally... Take time to practice your diction, pace, enunciation, your, like, speaking from the belly. It's funny you ask that. You know, I I can tell you my dad died in July 2020. He's got a big cheese-eating grin right now. Because when we were kids, he would always tell us, diction, elocution, your words because my brother used to speak very quickly and he was a mumbler so he was always on my brother but um, that is something that was drilled and instilled in us at an early age Um, and then as our voices got deeper it became easier to be resonant Um, but yes That is something that my dad, in particular, made sure we focused on. Diction. And he would make the exaggerated facial expression. Exactly. Chew your words. (laughs) I would spend hours, when I first started getting all this stuff together, and spend so much time learning that it's okay to pause. Yes. And how to dictate a little bit mm-hmm. nicer because I am I am more of the mumbler. Uh, there it goes. <laughs> it ta- it 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 really is a skill, and I've been able to sit across from several people, and re- this week, it's a it it's a different standard, and your dad did. The right thing. I mean, that's well, huge. He only passed because he said, my job is done. These boys will carry it forward. And, uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, that's where that's where we got it. I mean, my mother was an elementary school principal, but also, and much to her credit, um, one of her first jobs was with New Jersey Bell. Now, this is back in the days when uh, Ma Bell, you've heard that referred to, the telephone company was Bell. And she worked for New Jersey Bell as an operator. And he doesn't like that word operator. Um, one of the things she would always focus on, because people would mishear 
the number nine and the number five, five. right? Five. So when you speak, when again, telephone technology is a lot better than it was back in those days. But um, she would literally, we lived at 10925 207th Street in Queens, <laughs> New York. And she would always say, 10925, and she would smile when she said it so that it came across clearly but she said nine so that people would understand it was nine and not five so it was 109 25 207th street and so she and she to this day um, she still is very particular with her diction as well so dad said it mom performed it but we learned it from the two of them <laughs> I, I I've always wanted to take class like what is it? It's called. It's like a teacup, or they have a. Man, I hate that I cannot remember. It's a, it's a name of a group where they meet to practice public speaking. Yeah, yeah. Um. Oh heck. Uh, I can't believe I can't think of it. Toastmasters. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank yes. you. I was like, tease. Thank you. Uh, I've wanted to be involved with Toastmasters, but I don't know that there isn't anything that I can't learn on YouTube. The one thing you can't learn on YouTube or get is the instant feedback because you have to present to your other Toastmaster class members so they will critique your performance and everyone hears things differently. So it gives you the opportunity to hear, and it depends on how big the class is, 5, 10, 15 people, how you presented. Did you make appropriate eye contact? Did you use hand gesticulations? Did they find that off-putting? Did they find that informative? So there's a lot that you excuse me, learned from Toastmasters that you can't get from the interweb. Did you do a Toastmasters? I did not. Um, because I was in theater, um, I never, I remember in junior high, I had a little bit of fear of public speaking, um, but I wound up becoming, uh, I, I won wittiest in my high school popularity con, uh, contest. Um, so because of that, I used to do the school announcements in the morning. And Doing those sorts of things <laughs> and putting witticisms in there um, got me over that fear. You know, I would say, yeah, and it was the stupid stuff. You know, it would be an event, be there or be square. And everybody just thought that was the fun. Oh, Winfrey's so hilarious. So that kind of got me over the initial butterflies. Um, but also doing theater um, was a big help as well because it teaches you how to project um, it teaches you timing it teaches you that there's nothing wrong with pauses as you mentioned earlier but also I'll never forget there were diction exercises we would do and one that's coming back to me now was um, one of our directors we would get in a big group and everyone would have to say in unison um, Try to remember what it was. It was something like, 
what to, to do to do today at a minute or two to two. And you had to, you know, be perfect with your uh, diction. And these were diction exercises that taught you how to space out phrases, how to use elocution in your delivery. And like my dad said, how to chew your words. So you can get that from theater or you can get that from Toastmasters. But I would say Toastmasters would probably be easier to do. A&M just now got performing arts school, so there probably weren't many opportunities the way the school is currently structured or had been previously. Um, yeah, so Toastmasters is is worth investigating. Cool. Yeah. I'm you know, it is a research campus. It used to be known as the Research Annex. So it is an educational uh, campus. So the um, eleven, well, ten universities in the system have facilities out there in the Academic Alliance Building. Uh, there's research done on the proving grounds, which are the runways, and that's where we've done our historic crash testing. And it's also what I say, educational research. Uh, well, really, those are the two um, prominent uh, parts of the campus. So there's the Proving Ground, Secured Proving Ground. Army Futures Command is out there doing their research. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's just a – it's a conglomerate, but there are two principal historic tenants, TTI and TEKS, the Engineering Experiment, not uh, Extension Service. We're the two that have been out there the longest uh, there's an apiary out there. The bee people are out there. There's a um, Secure America Institute. That's part of TEKS and TEAS as well. So it's really an engineering playground. But there's also um, Blinn College is there with two buildings. So um, our partnership with the uh, two-year college is uh, pretty strong. And, and that's kind of a throughput for people who either didn't grade into A&M uh, or people, uh, veterans returning and needing retraining and adults needing retraining. So it's it's got a lot uh, on its radar screen. It wants to be more, but that's how it is right now. Uh, ultimately, it'll be the home of um, corporate partners as well. Yeah. So if corporate builder A uh -huh. decides that they want to house there or teach there or? Ideally, they would be a partner with someone uh, at A&M. Like I said, it's principally engineering. So let's say Lockheed Martin puts a facility out there because they're working uh, with the Army. Uh, NASA may want to have a closer relationship with the experiment station. It's those kinds of partnerships. We have a company called Neology that's a partner of ours. They put a high-speed track in because they make the um, toll tags. And if you're going 100 miles an hour, it's hard for the toll tags to actually track the vehicle um, going past at such a speed. So they're trying to develop high-speed tolling capabilities because they're losing money on 85-mile-an-hour posted Texas roadways where people are going 95 yeah. and better. Yeah. 
So it's that kind of stuff. Uh, people that have real world uh, challenges where they need engineered solutions, and that gives them a chance to work with Teeks. That gives them a chance to work with T's or TTI. I thought Teeks was for education. Uh, yeah, does a lot of that workforce development, but um, that's where the fire school is. So um, firefighters from around the world come and practice uh, at their fire city, which is um, out by the airport. You know, so uh, they do that. There's disaster city also. So you know, the 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 earthquakes in Syria and Turkey with collapsed buildings. They have uh, those kinds of structures where. First responders can go in with dogs like Boomer, cadaver dogs, and, and others to go find survivors. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the people who've gone over to Syria and Turkey actually trained out at Disaster City. Yeah. The reach that this university It's has. incredible. It's incredible. It really is. No, no, it's incredible. I had no idea that A&M was as broad and as deep as it is. I'm continually amazed. And I've been to universities all around the country, and what we got is pretty special. Yeah, it's, it's that Aggie Network is a real is a real thing. It's a thing. Yeah, so I'm going to get my PhD. They're, they're the system now has a program where they will pay for tuition and fees for um, system employees that want to get their PhDs. Now it has to be in something that's a- applicable to their place of work. So what would you do? Yes. So. Uh, I was a communications major in college. That's what I'm going to get, PhD in communications. Particularly since I won't have to F around with uh, statistics or stuff like that. I'm not yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Yeah, that's right. What you got engineers for? I'm not doing that. So, yeah, that's what I'm thinking about doing. So I, I've already got my writing sample um, that I need to submit. I've just been uh, perfecting it. So I have plenty of time on my hands to get that uh, finally Straightened out and, and, and sent in, yeah. And then uh, I'll be off to the races. It's mostly um, self-led uh, instruction uh, for that, for a communications PhD. Less so than engineering where it's a lot more, like we said, linear in what you need to learn and what you need to know. Not so much for communications. It's self-directed. That'd be cool. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Dr. Esquire. Yeah, would that be crazy? Dr. Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I was like, hey, free PhD. I mean, they're not giving them away, but why wouldn't I? So, particularly since um, academics, that's all they recognize is they need to see a. I was told that when I joined because the high watermark for lawyers is to pass a bar. And when you pass a bar, you get to use Esquire. If you went to law school, you get to use JD, right? So Esquire is the the home run. Um, so when I got there, I was like, yeah, put Esquire on my car. So I'm like, uh, well, what does that mean? Well, that means I passed the bar. I'm a practicing lawyer. Oh, well, here in an academic environment, um, they're not going to know what that means. Uh, <laughs> can you use the JD? They need to see something with a D after your name. I was like, really? <clears throat> Whatever. <laughs> so then you just get the maybe would you have to, would you do PhD or doctor and then uh, you know I probably would go with Esquire PhD. 
something like that. It would make it more popular, right? I remember you saying yeah. that most people in the States are really... Oh, yeah. If they see PhD, they get all happy. But if they see Esquire, they don't recognize. Not in a academic environment. Yeah. But in a, but in a, a law... In oh, a yeah. But the law school, they know what that means. Mm-hmm. So... Do you want to keep on going? We're at 930, 930 something. 946. About to be 10 o'clock. Yeah, I probably should bounce out. Yeah. Maybe we'll come back and do the uh, movie and the and the record. That's the best thing about it. <laughs> Anytime. There's no rush. Okay. Um, I'm going to go ahead. If you don't mind, just a little, a little golden nugget. Yeah. <laughs> because we are we are still like we, I started recording because I wasn't sure if we we're gonna start yeah um, on a separate track so I don't know if I might not I might not use this track okay but if you could have just like you had at the very end of the last one yeah somebody's listening they want to take a little take home what would that take home be in what capacity are we talking I think. I like to give a little bit of creative space, mm-hmm. but it's like if you were talking to your 60-year-old self, a piece of knowledge that that 60-year-old kid could have used to make life better or, hey, just keep doing what you're doing. No, that's, that's a good question. So I would say... And this has been consistent with our conversation, but a nugget would be you can do anything you put your mind to. Sounds corny, sounds trite, but when I was a kid, my mother would tell me that you can be the president of the United States if you want to. But as a little black boy from Roosevelt, Long Island, that had never happened before. I'd never seen it. Nobody had ever seen it. So we would smile and nod and make mama happy, right? And, and I know, ma, I know, you know, your, your boy can do everything. Um, so it wasn't until President Obama won where I literally had to sit back and say she was absolutely right. You know, had I not taken her seriously, because I always did. Um, but sometimes it's hard to see things if there hasn't been a predecessor, right? So as my dad said, just because there's no one behind you doesn't mean you're not a leader. That certainly applies with the election of President Obama. Um, nothing that this country had ever seen before. And if you polled anybody at that time, nothing that they ever expected to happen. Um, But he had in his mind's eye that this is achievable and I'm going to do it. Um, So as I sit here today, I can look back and say my mother was right. But back then, as 16-year-old Greg, looking forward, it wasn't that I didn't believe her, but I didn't have a vision where I could place myself in it or I didn't have, and that's more important than a role model, right? Because a vision means you can see 
you can mentally place yourself in that space. That's the beauty of how children play when they dress up and play. I'm a firefighter. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. They're putting themselves in that role. And we lose that once we get older, right? You can do it as a child. I can see myself as president when I'm five. Why do I lose that when I'm 16? Why do I need to see someone who has walked that path? Why wasn't I prepared to walk that path and project myself in that role? So, like I said, it's trite. It's cliche. It's corny. But... You can be what you put your mind to be. Thank you for listening to the Ben Navarro's podcast. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, and all other major podcast hosting platforms. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. 